seeing the crowds, he, that is Jesus, went up on the mountain. When he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would help us to know more of what it means to be blessed by you this day. We pray that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, softened hearts to receive not only the Word of God, but all the grace and the blessing of God that can come through it and in it as the Holy Spirit gives the application to us this morning. Lord, we pray that we would know Christ and that we would embrace Him as you have embraced us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, all human beings throughout the world are searching for a blessing of some kind. Think about it. Every, every aspect of what we do in life is each individual. We're seeking something of the good life. We're seeking it with a, a passion, pursuing our understanding of what that means, even though most of us never find what we're looking for. In fact, uh, the old U2 song, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. I've been looking for it my whole life, and you still can't find it. There's something that this world simply can't offer. It doesn't matter whether you follow a particular religion or not. Everyone is, is vying for more of that blessing, more than what we currently have. We try to suck out as much of the sweetness of life as we can. And we try to avoid any aspect of the bitterness and the sourness that automatically comes along with living in a fallen world. To some extent, we all envy someone else whom we perceive have more of the good thing, more of the blessing than what we have. We look to that person as a, or persons as a, as a model to follow. If only we had what they had. If only we could be like them, then maybe then we could taste true blessing. I was 13 years old in 1986. That was the year that Air Jordan shoes became very popular in America. I grew up just down the road from where Michael Jordan played basketball in high school, and then later on where he played basketball in college at the University of North Carolina. Pretty much every boy living in the entire state of North Carolina wanted a pair of Air Jordan shoes. I happened to be one of them. The only problem was the cost of the shoes at that time were $100 in 1986. The average cost of a boy's pair of tennis shoes at that time was $40. And if anyone here has ever met my dad, the biggest cheapskate you'll ever meet. 
very sensible man. No matter how many times I begged and pleaded, cried and pestered him, he would say again, again, son, you don't need a $100 pair of shoes. You have a $40 pair of shoes that work just as well, and they'll last just as long. And so that's when I realized for the first time in my life that my life was meaningless. Absolutely pointless. Futile in every way. There was no point of even living anymore at that point because in my mind, happiness was wrapped up with me having a pair of Air Jordan tennis shoes. And I look back at them now, and they were the ugliest things I had ever seen. But at the time, everyone else had them, so I had to have them too. It's interesting in the word in the Greek for blessing. I won't pronounce it for you, but basically it literally means to make something large or to envy someone for the good things that they have in their life. That's literally what the word blessed means, the happiness of of someone had you, you see that happiness and you want something. You want that something, that good thing. Our idea of, of what that is is different for each of us, but to some extent our idea of blessing stems from what we're envious of. We feel like we're we're missing something. We want something of, of that that we don't have. The reason so many young men wanted to be like Mike was because they were envious of how he could glide through the air toward the rim and slam the basketball. They were envious of how he dominated his opponents, his extreme confidence to come out, even if he was sick as a dog and still whip his opponents. Certainly, they were envious of his wealth. You realize Michael Jordan is only one of three athletes who are a billionaire today. Billionaire, not millionaire. <laughs> billionaire. He's been the subject of more posters than any other athlete in the world. You can see why Gatorade commercials began that promotion, Be Like Mike, because so many kids wanted to be like Mike. So if that's what a young man's image was of the good life, most young men would be disappointed because <laughs> they couldn't be like Mike. It was impossible for them to be like Mike. Even if they were basketball players, as I was, like to play, most young men who played in high school would not make it to college. Those who made it to college, only 0.3% made it to the NBA. And out of those 0.3, a good 10% or 20% of those would be cut from the team within the first two weeks. The, the statistics are astronomically against you being like Mike. Thus, if your image of the good life is to be like him, you're going to be sorely at a loss. Same thing for young girls comparing themselves to supermodels, thinking that I have to look like this image in a magazine, or like an actress, or an astronaut, or a politician, or a CEO of a billionaire company. Most of us probably don't put up posters on our walls today anymore. But if you did, what would your image be of the good life? What is it that you think is a blessing? How many things would you put on that poster? It's a good question to ask. We all have a tendency to, to envision something of what the good life is, something of what a blessed life is. You know, the people living in ancient times had their own view of the, the good life. Most of them, because they lived in an agricultural society, thought the good life is having a really big barn full of barn things. Some of us here today might want a really big barn. I don't know. It's quite possible. In fact, the, the, the rich fool that uh, 
Jesus spoke of in, in, in the book of Matthew. He said he had accumulated so much stuff that he built bigger barns, right? And then he sat back and he said, soul, take your ease for now. You're living the good life, basically. And then Jesus said, you're a fool. For tonight, your soul will be required of you. But yet, in his mind, he had gotten to the point of living the good life. He has a full barn. Or if you think of Job, right? The, the book of Job begins and ends with describing the blessings upon Job's life. And in between all those horrible trials in the middle of the story. But if you remember, at the end of the story, God had blessed him twice as much as he was blessed in the beginning. And what did that blessing look like? Well, now he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. I don't know about you, but that's not my image of the good life. I think that would be very noisy and smelly and a lot of work. But again, for some of you, that, that's, that's the image, right? That you, that's something you want. Something that you think would be a blessing. Well, when, when Jesus comes on the scene and He delivers this very famous Sermon on the Mount, He's challenging His disciples' view of what the good life is. In fact, the, the whole Sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, is, is, a, is a challenge to life in the kingdom of this world, trying to show us what, how to live in the kingdom of the world that is still yet to come of being a citizen of that new kingdom with, with better blessings. In fact, with the highest blessings that one could ever obtain uh, in this life from God. Indeed, there are, there are many lesser blessings in this world. And in fact, not just believers, but unbelievers share in those lesser blessings. We certainly have many blessings that God has given to us, but there, there are higher blessings that are only given to those who know God and who love Him. And those are the ones that are being spoken of in, in this passage. These higher blessings are called Beatitudes, which is the beginning of a new sermon series. But before we get into those specific blessings of each one, uh, which we'll do next week, I, I wanted to consider them as a whole. Uh, how, how can we give a, a bird's eye view of them, if you will? And I want to look at three things this morning. First, I want to look at the context in which they're given to us, uh, both in the Sermon on the Mount as well as in the context of Matthew. Second, I want to look at how they are set in contrast to earthly blessings that most of us think that would give us a good life. And then third, I want us to consider the contours of the Beatitudes themselves. Of What is the shape or the outline? What are, we, what are we looking for? What's the ultimate goal here? So in short, we're going to look at the context, and then the contrast, and then lastly, the contours of the Beatitudes. So what's the context? As you know, Matthew's Gospel begins with a genealogy. Not very exciting for most of us reading the New Testament. If you pick up and you're going to start reading in the New Testament and you start in Matthew chapter 1, you're probably not all that thrilled. But an Old Testament believer would be very thrilled if they understood the significance of why Matthew starts in that way. If you remember, I had shared with you, I don't know, a couple months ago now, that the Old Testament technically doesn't end with the book of Malachi. At least in the Hebrew Bible, it ends with the book of Chronicles. And Chronicles is full of all of these genealogies that are meant to point us to the Christ who is to come. So when Matthew begins his Gospel in the first chapter, he starts with the same set of genealogies, with the same people that were mentioned in Chronicles, but then shows us the fullness of that genealogy and how it points to the Christ that He has now come 
He is the true son of David. He is the one we've been looking for. His name is Jesus. Then when we get into the second chapter, we see these magi, these men, foreign men from the east, coming and giving gifts to a king. They're calling him a king. So clearly he is this this Christ. And then all of a sudden, Herod the king is upset. He wants to kill him. So he starts to, to kill all the boys in the town of Bethlehem. And as a result, there's a flight to Egypt. Even that's a part of God's appointed plan. So that way when God calls Jesus out of Egypt, He's following in the same footsteps, if you will, of God's chosen Son, the nation of Israel. The whole nation of Israel is pointing us to the Christ who would come. So just as Jesus comes out of Egypt, so had Israel come out of Egypt. Just as Israel passed through the waters of the sea, so now the next chapter we see Jesus is being led through the waters of baptism. We see that Jesus then is being brought into the the wilderness to a time of temptation so that He too can follow in the same pattern just as the Israelites are going into the wilderness to be tested by God. But as you know, they fail the test miserably. He passes it with perfection. He is declared to be the Son of God with power after God has already said, this is My Son with Him. I am well pleased. He is the one that we've been looking for. Then finally, we get to chapter 5. And the Sermon on the Mount begins. Jesus is seen going up on a mountain to share the message about this new kingdom. To share more about what it means to understand the law of God. How do you apply that in in your life? Well, if you remember, even that is following the pattern of Israel still. Because after Israel begins to enter the wilderness, where do they go next? They go to Mount Sinai. They go up a mountain. God reveals His law to them. And now Jesus is doing the same thing. He's purposely going up on a mountain to teach the law of God to His people. And He reveals more of the fullness of the law and how it points to Him. The new kingdom has dawned. And now He's showing them how does this all point to Him and then how is it now lived through Him? How does someone now repent? He's he's beginning to say the kingdom of God is here. Repent. Believe the good news. Part of that repentance is a change of mind. Literally, the word in the Greek for repentance means I'm changing my mindset. I'm going to think like God now. I'm not going to think like I used to. And so the Sermon on the Mount is to teach us how to think in the new kingdom way. Not in the old way. Not in the ways of the Gentiles. Not in the old ways of our fathers. But to think in a new way based upon our citizenship in this new kingdom. It's important for us to understand that this law that is given on the Sermon on the Mount is not a law for anyone to earn their way of salvation. Same way it wasn't the, the Ten Commandments were not given in the Old Testament so that the people of God could earn their salvation. They, they, they begin in the same way, the same manner. God calls them out. He has already called out His disciples. has already preached that salvation to them. They have already been chosen by Him. And now He says, now here's how you live according to My laws. Well, if you remember, the Ten Commandments begins the same way. He says, I am the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. In other words, I've already called you to be My people. Now live as My people with a different mindset, a different way. Don't do it like the nations all around you. Prior to being a member of the new kingdom, we lived according to the ways of the old kingdom. But you can't live that way anymore. You'll never be happy that way. God purposely calls us to a new way of living. 
which means repenting of our old thoughts and our old vision of the good life. So by sitting down on the mountain, you'll notice that uh, I'm standing, Jesus sat. Why am I not sitting when I preach? Jesus sat when he preached because he was fulfilling. Again, Matthew 23, verse 2 tells us later on that Jesus was explaining how the Pharisees and the, the teachers of the law, the scribes, ought to be obeyed in what they said because they sat in the seat of Moses. In other words, they're giving them the law of God. They ought to listen to what they're saying because of, of they, they have the right to sit in the seat of Moses. It's interesting. He says, don't do what they do, but just do what they say, because they're hypocrites, right? But they're sitting in the seat of Moses, so you should listen to what they say. So he's sitting in the seat of Moses. He's opening his mouth, speaking with authority, but he speaks with authority in a different way than anyone who else had come before him, because finally, we actually see the man who is able to ascend God's holy hill in The book of Exodus, when God reveals His law, God comes down from heaven and reveals it. This time, Jesus goes up the mountain and gives the law. He's able to ascend, if you will, the steps into God's presence on the mountain and then give them the perfection of the law because He is the perfect one who has fulfilled it in every way. Psalm 24, who is this one who can ascend God's holy hill? Who is this one who has clean hands and a pure heart who could sit in the seat of Moses? This is the one. This is the Christ. And so he opens his mouth and begins to teach them not only the perfection of the law, but the blessing that comes along with it. And the blessing that he pronounces is quite different than the blessings of this world. And that's where the contrast comes in. That's point number two. There's a big difference between the blessings that he's pronouncing here in the Sermon on the Mount and the blessings that most of us think of as blessings. If you remember in the very beginning, the time of creation, when God created Adam and Eve along with all the other creatures, He blessed them not only with beauty and, and strength and fruitfulness and multiplication, but also with the joy of His presence. If you remember, He was walking with them in the cool of the garden in the day. And for a brief time, that first couple experienced fullness of blessing. They experienced the earthly blessings, but in the right context of a right relationship with God. If you remember in the beginning, in that context of blessing, they never experienced any aspect of want, any aspect of loss, any aspect of bitterness or disappointment. It was fullness of blessing in the full presence of God. Of course, you know how long that lasted. It wouldn't be long before Adam and Eve would disobey God and seek some aspect of blessing apart from Him, apart from His rule, apart from His presence, because as soon as they decided to go their own way, they were not just kicked out of a pleasure garden, a garden of bliss, but they were kicked out of the very presence of God, the giver of those blessings. And so now... Immediately, Adam's blessing, blessings are they're diminished. And for the first time, he experiences something of the curse of God. He's entered into a new estate, death and decay. For the first time, he senses that whatever blessings I had, they're, they're, they're not even close to what 
They ought to be. That's not to say that Adam lost all blessing. God still is the giver of good gifts. He still blessed Adam and Eve in many ways. He still gave them the warmth of the sun and the rain that gives life and plenty to eat, even though they had to work hard for it amongst the thorns and the thistles and the sweat of the brow. Eve still enjoyed the blessing of child-rearing, even though she had difficult labor. But nevertheless, from that point on, there would be much disappointment, much bitterness. The law of diminishing returns began. Even as one began to seek a blessing, that blessing began to lose its savor very quickly. In addition, now you have other sinners around you. Before it was just righteous people living together in a garden in the righteous presence of God, but now you have sinners living apart from God's full presence. And now there's a competition amongst the blessings. Do you have more blessings than me? Do I have more blessings than you? I'm going to make sure that I get more than you do, right? Jacob's whole life before God saves him is this constant wrestling with men trying to get his blessings from his brother, trying to get his blessings from his uncle, trying in some way or another until finally he says to the Lord as he wrestles with him in the middle of the night, Lord, bless me. He's not looking for his blessings from the Lord. He's looking for his blessings by taking them from other people. So we see very early on afterwards in the history of Scripture, during the time of Noah, you would not want to do it. I, can't, I don't know of anyone who ever had said, well, if you have a time machine, what period of time would you like to go back to? I'd like to go back to the time just before the flood. I don't, I don't know of anyone who's ever said that. Because basically, you're running around with a bunch of bloodthirsty, crazy, loony people who all they care about is themselves, and they're willing to kill you for whatever they can get because there's no sense of law. There's no sense of order that hadn't been given yet. You can see why God destroyed the world. Can you imagine, what was it, uh, was it Lamech, is that his name, who boasted that he had two women and killed some guy because he looked at him the wrong way? That's the kind of life that they were living in at the time. And they were constantly a sense of fear and competition trying to grab as much blessing as you could get because you knew that there weren't as many as there were originally in the Garden of Eden. There wasn't as many blessings to go around, even in our world today, you think about it. You, know, you live in a land of full and plenty, but there are other lands that you could have been born into in which you barely could scrape together existence. And that led in many ways to different types of idolatry. Right? By the time we get to the Tower of Babel, we see men are trying to build a tower unto heaven apart from God, apart from His rule, trying to obtain the blessing in some other way. Every false religion on the planet is based upon the concept that I can make a God of my own image. That I can manipulate. That I can obtain a blessing from. If you've ever gone to another country and have seen people offer offerings of food to a statue and stay there for hours praying and praying and asking that God for a blessing who is no God at all. can give them anything, but they believe that they can and so they keep begging, keep cutting themselves, or whatever it is that they do to make sure that God hears their prayers. But as you know, the Lord thwarts that plan again and again. He confuses their languages at Babel and disperses them over the face of the earth. And then in opposition to that, that's when God for the first time raises up a man 
that he chooses to bless on purpose. Different. I mean, he's done it with Noah, uh, saving Noah from that generation. But now, all of these men were trying to make a name for themselves, trying to obtain a blessing in their own way, and God destroys all that. Instead, pours out his blessing upon this one individual, Abraham, and promises him all of these things. Promises to make his name great, the very thing that the Babylonians were looking for. Promises him this great land and a multitude of children, a great nation. Eventually he would be a blessing to all the nations of the world. And all this would be about through God's way. God's plan. It's important to understand that Abraham wasn't any more righteous than his neighbors. God didn't bless him because he was deserving of blessings. In fact, if you think about it, every blessing that we have, earthly blessing in this world, do, do we deserve any of them? Does God not just give them freely to sinners, even though we don't deserve them, and then we cast our fist up at God when He doesn't give them as much as we want them to? We don't get blessings because we deserve them. It's always an aspect of grace. But God enters into a covenant with Abraham, and he begins to dole out upon him a number of earthly blessings. We think of the honor that he received. We think of the riches that he had. We think of the land and all the children. All of these were considered the lesser blessings. Now, if you've tuned me out thus far, this is where we get into a little bit more the important aspect of it. There's a greater blessing that he focused on in that covenant. That God would be his God. The God of his people and that they would be God's people. The relationship with God was the great blessing. And as they were in a right relationship with Him, those other blessings flowed. But it was the relationship with Him that mattered. It was the relationship with Him that gave the joy because the blesser is greater than the blessing, you see. In the passage we read earlier from in Deuteronomy chapter 28. I only, I only made Mark read the good part of that passage. It's a long chapter. I think it's like 70 some verses. Uh, the first number of verses have to do with the blessings that God pronounces upon His people that they enjoy if they're obeying Him and walking in His presence. But then there's a second section which is much, much longer in which He pronounces curses upon those same people if they disobey Him and and reject him as their God. And some of the physical blessings that he mentions, he said, well, he's going to bless the fruit of their womb. He's going to bless the fruit of their ground. He's going to bless the fruit of their cattle. He would bless their, their basket and their kneading bowl and their barns. He would bless their sword and their shield in battle and their hands in labor, blessing them with peace and prosperity in every way. All those things that most of us today would love to be blessed in more than we have currently. But the opposite was true as well. When they disobeyed God, He promised some horrendous curses upon them. Pestilence, blight, drought, mildew, sickness, fever, wasting disease, boils, scabs, tumors, madness, blindness, horrid and powerful enemies, robbers, thieves, pillars, plunderers, rapists, kidnappers, slaughterers, executioners. I just saved you about 10 minutes of Mark's reading right there. But the, the most devastating out of all the curses that he would bring would be that he would excommunicate them from the promised land. They would no longer be able to come into his presence at the temple. 
all those lesser blessings were meant to be forewarnings when they were taken away that they would wake up and see that they're missing the greater blessing. They've been trying to enjoy the lesser blessings apart from God and it just doesn't work. It just leads to more misery and then someone continues to in their idolatry to seek more and more of the earthly blessing and it just leaves you more and more empty. It will never satisfy. Of course, that's not to say that no one who lived in the promised land at that time never got sick or that no one ever died. Certainly they did. But God's promise was that if they continue to seek the Lord, the, the, the prosperity, the, the overwhelming blessing would still be known. But when all of these are withdrawn, suddenly you should pay attention. Something's wrong. Something is dreadfully wrong. God has withdrawn from you. And His blessings are the evidence of that. Sort of like you remember Samson, right? Samson did not know that God had left him. His hair was cut, and then all of a sudden, he tried to do the same thing. He had no idea that he had lost God's presence through his disobedience. He thought he would still have the earthly blessing apart from his relationship with God. But as soon as that last mark after he had drank the wine and been near the dead bodies and cut his hair like he wasn't supposed to, that's when finally God withdrew his presence, which was more important than those other things that he had lost. It's important to know, though, that uh, even as we read these things, the loss of earthly blessings does not always equate with displeasure from God. Even at that time, uh, the wisdom literature was written primarily to help the believers understand that just because bad things happen don't mean automatically that you've done something bad. Or that because you've received good things, it's because you've done something good. It's not based upon that. The wisdom literature is given to, to contrast the heavenly blessings from the earthly blessings, the higher blessings from the lesser blessings. For instance, you'll see this in, in, a, in a, a much greater way once uh, the Psalms and Job and all these books are written. Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the one who delights himself not merely in the gifts of God, but in the law of the Lord itself. In other words, he delights in knowing the Lord and knowing His ways. He delights in fearing God. And that's a greater blessing to him than anything else. Psalm 1 does not begin with, blessed is the man who has all the wealth in the world and who has all the things that he can imagine. No, blessed is the one who simply delights himself in the law of the Lord. Or look at what uh, Psalm 65, verse 4, David says this, blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. In other words, there's greater blessing from being in the presence of God in God's house of worship than there is in anything else that this world has to offer. David fully believed that. There's a greater blessing that he had found. Psalm 84, verse 4, the sons of Korah agree. They say, blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise, and blessed are those in whose hearts are the highways to Zion. In other words, Wherever I am, my heart, there's a road to God's dwelling place. I'm always looking to find God, and I'm finding blessing from simply knowing the Lord and spending time with the Lord. A greater blessing than can be found in the goods of this world. Then some of the psalmists get real crazy, and they start saying, blessed is the one whom God disciplines. You're like, okay, you're going a little too far. 
Blessed is the one who God reproves. I mean, whenever, you know, if you ever been to a church that had a Thanksgiving service, and you're like, they, people stand up every now and then and say, well, I, I give thanks because God, uh, you know, healed me from this disease or God gave us a new child. Or, no one ever stands up and says, I give thanks that He disciplined me this year. No one says that. They don't think of it as a good thing. It's the last thing they want to mention. But this blessed believer who has understood something of the nature of God understands that when God disciplines me, He's removing my sin so that I can see God more clearly. He wants God more. He's willing to undergo any hardship, any suffering, any pain if that means that He will know God more. Because He's finding there's greater pleasure in God than there are in the things of this world. But that kind of joy, that kind of blessing is not something that unbelievers will ever understand. It doesn't, doesn't bring any comprehension whatsoever. And that's why Jesus shares these beatitudes with the disciples. He purposely has his, he goes up on the mountain and his disciples come to him so he can reveal to them more fully what does it mean really to be blessed. It's not about earthly goods. So Jesus shares these beatitudes with them because he knows that they already have something planted within them to, to help them to understand it, to desire it. Even if it's just something new for them. It's not a full desire. They still have old desires of the old kingdom. Different ways, different understandings of blessing. But now there's something new that's contrasting that. Contradicting that view of the old life. One of the key themes in the Sermon on the Mount as a whole, all the chapters 5-7, through seven, is this idea of contrasting God's people from the Gentiles, from the pagans. Contrasting them from the hypocrites. Uh, more than anything else, he keeps saying, do not be like them. You've been called to something different. You've been called to a new life, a new way of thinking, a new way of dreaming, a new way of praying, a new way of doing life. Don't be like Mike. Don't be like the Gentiles. Don't be like the Jewish leaders who are hypocrites. Ultimately, he's pointing them to himself. Be like Christ. Look for your blessings elsewhere where I dwell in the heavens. And that leads us finally to the contours of the Beatitudes themselves. Number three. You ever wondered why these particular blessings are called the Beatitudes? Why are they called Beatitudes? Why don't we just call them the blessings? Why Beatitudes? Well, the word Beatitude is a word that comes from the Latin. It's related to the beatific vision. Are you familiar with that term? The beatific Beatific vision is a, is a vision that the saints who are now in heaven have of God, seeing God face to face. They have a greater pleasure, a greater joy, a greater peace than any of us could even imagine here on earth merely by looking upon the face of their Savior. They have experienced the beatific vision of God. And they have found great pleasure there. We can see something of it through the Gospel. Something of it through the work of the Spirit in us. But they can see God face to face. Well, in the same way, that the Beatitudes are a much higher blessing than what can be found in the things of this world. A supreme blessing. One that can only be seen and understood and grasped by someone within whom the Holy Spirit dwells. The very highest of blessings. 
there's a, a future tense to all of these blessings. The sense that they will receive mercy. They will um, enjoy some aspect of satisfaction. They, they will inherit the kingdom of God. But there's also a present tense reality to each of them as well. That they already have something of this kingdom seed within them. There's already, they're already tasting it. They're already enjoying something of its fairly. They already have their passport, if you will, to the new kingdom. They can now enjoy something of it. So there's a future fulfillment of each of these blessings, but there's also present enjoyment of them as well. But what is it that the believer enjoys? It's not merely a set of truths or propositions. It's not merely a set of gifts that God gives. What he enjoys is the very person of Jesus himself. Ultimately, what Jesus is showing them through the Sermon on the Mount is not that they need to keep the law to be saved. That in the law, the law points them to someone greater than the law. Someone greater than Moses. A pleasure greater than any pleasure that this world can find. It can only be found in Christ. Think of it this way. Psalm 16. David, speaking of the Lord, he says this, You are my chosen portion in my cup. What is he saying when he says that? He's saying, You are the blessing that I want. In other words, you could fill my cup with grain, you could fill my cup with wine, you could fill my cup with oil. I don't want any of that. I want the cup to be filled with you. You are my cup. I don't want more land. I don't want more titles. You are the inheritance I want. He said, that's why the boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places, he says, because you are my inheritance. You are what I want. He's understood something of the blessing of God that earthly man would never understand. So he finally says, verse 11, Psalm 16, he says, you make known to me the path of life. But then here's what he said. I've memorized this verse I don't know how many times. Forgotten it sometimes, then remembered it again. He says, in your presence there is what? Fullness of joy. At your right hand are what? Pleasures forevermore. In fact, in another text, he calls them rivers of delight flow from your throne. At your right hand, at God's right hand are pleasures forevermore. And what's at God's right hand? Well, when Jesus dies and buried and resurrected, he sends up in heaven, where does he go? At the right hand of the Father. If you want to find pleasures forevermore, you will find them at the right hand of God where Christ is seated. Unlike Moses... He has kept it all and wants to give that same pleasure and blessing to you. The Apostle Paul says it's already given to those who are believers. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Notice what he says. He says, God has blessed us in Christ Jesus with what? Every spiritual blessing in Christ in the heavenly realms. We already have all of these blessings. So in other words, you don't need to seek your whole life to be trying to obtain a blessing that's already been given to you. You can't earn it. can't work for it. God gives it as a grace. He's already given it to a believer. You already have every spiritual blessing. So in other words, you have the higher blessings. You have the blessings that give these greater pleasures. The problem is there's a difference between having them and enjoying them. So you can have something and not enjoy it. In fact, the wisdom literature tells you that again and again. There are people that have money in their pockets, but then there's holes in those pockets and the money keeps falling out. 
right? Or they put a, a piece of food in their mouth and they can't taste it. Right? They, they still have the blessing, but they can't enjoy the blessing. Uh, Thomas Watson, Puritan pastor, 17th century, he, he used two analogies that I thought were really good. Um, he said, the unbeliever looking for his pleasure in earthly blessings is like a, a, a child trying to smell the, the posies, if you will, and is grasping them so tight that uh, they're falling apart in the child's hand and they're withering even as they're enjoying the blessing of it. Or like an immature believer holding on to a piece of ice on a hot day and enjoying the cool pleasure of holding it in his hand when he's hot. Not realizing that every minute that he holds it, it's diminishing more and more, quickly and quickly, until it's no more blessing at all. Every earthly blessing that has ever been given by God that we have here on earth is going to be lost. Why would you seek those primarily? Why would you live for those things? They will not last. In fact, uh, every, every one of those blessings, Thomas Watson says, are, are crying, I'm going to leave you. I'm going to leave you soon. I'm going to pick up wings and I'm going to fly away and you will not have me anymore. Think of it, even all, all the loved ones in your life, every single thing that you love on this earth, you're going to lose. You cannot keep it. It will never make you happy because your happiness will always be lost by those things of this earth that will be lost. So there has to be a higher blessing that you seek and ultimately, he says, you're going to find that in the very face of Christ. It's from His face that the very beams of blessing shine forth. So we have to look in the right place. And so Jesus is trying to help his disciples understand that even as he's calling them to a life of suffering, if you notice, every one of them is going to go through a lot of pain as they share the gospel with unbelievers who want to hurt them in some way or another. And now he's pointing them to a higher life, a higher sense of blessing. And that's what he's calling us to as well. So as we think about these things and we meditate upon them over the next few weeks, want us to understand that the, the, the good news of the gospel is simply this. The greatest blessing that you can ever find in this life is only going to be found in Christ. He's died for sinners who tried to find that blessing in every other thing on earth and failed. And now He's offering them new life, new joys, new pleasures. All they have to do is look to Him, take their yoke upon, take His yoke upon them knowing that his burden is easy, his yoke is light, he will give you the blessings that you've desired. But it's a different blessing. He who has ears to hear and eyes to see, let them receive this word with delight. Let's pray together. Our Father, we ask that you would help us as we study through these verses over the next few weeks. Pray that you would help us to see where we have placed our treasure where we have been misguided in our approach, where we have failed miserably to obtain the very things that we thought were so important to us, but ultimately to point us to something higher, something greater, something better. 
to point us to your son Jesus. That we would find the joy in the fullness of his face. We pray these things in Jesus' name.